You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. You're listening to Done By Law, brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. And welcome to Done By Law for the 5th of May 2020. We're on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am and 3CR Digital or streaming online via 3cr.org.au. We're proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're broadcasting from and pay respects to our elders past, present and emerging. We're your hosts tonight. I'm Gemma Lee Dodds and we're also joined by Daniel Bavtovich and Sue Robertson. Hey Gemma, hey Dan. Thank you, thank you Gemma. Should be Hi guys. Time. Yeah. Our main discussion tonight will be about a unique Australian law course. The future lawyers studying at Charles Sturt University finish with two qualifications. They not only are able to become legal practitioners, but have also been trained in Indigenous cultural competency. This is the only law course in Australia that offers this kind of training for future lawyers. But first, let's go to news in brief, where we're going to discuss the Moore and Scenic Tours recent High Court judgment. Well, it's fair to say that cruise ships have gotten a pretty bad rap over the last few months. But in a very timely coincidence, the High Court has recently handed down a judgment, uh, just last week, in fact, um, on a novel question of law about what kind of damages or compensation is available under consumer law. So disappointment and distress, which which arose in that case from a, a botched cruise ship trip. So to talk us through what happened, we're joined by Dr. Lauren Meath. Lauren is a graduate lawyer in Slater and Gordon's class actions team. Uh, She has a JD from RMIT and a PhD from the University of Melbourne. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. These (laughs) proceedings, which were commenced in 2014, so a while ago now, Uh, They're really the conclusion of a dream holiday gone wrong. Mr and Mrs Moore booked an $18,000 10-day riverboat vacation to see all of the sights of beautiful Europe, promoted by company Scenic Tours as a -a once-in-a-lifetime tour uh, where guests would be treated to all-inclusive luxury. The cruise was severely disrupted by adverse weather conditions Uh, that resulted from very high water levels. And instead of cruising for the 10 days as planned, uh, Mr Moore and his wife instead spent a significant number of hours on a bus. A Uh, bus? A bus. Blasphemy. less (laughs) luxurious travel than the boat promised. Uh, And this holiday was very disappointing to the Moors and to other passengers. Uh, And so representative proceedings were commenced in the Supreme Court of New South Wales against... So that's a, a class action on behalf yeah. of Mr Moore and other um, other travellers, was it? Yes, so on behalf of 1,500 other passengers. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, quite a lot. scenic cruisers. 
And, and what were they arguing, I guess, that they that, that they were entitled to? So the pleadings alleged that Scenic Tours had acted in breach of the guarantees protecting consumers under the Australian Consumer Law. Uh, largely, they breached a guarantee as to due care and skill. Uh, they breached a guarantee as to fitness for a particular purpose of the service they were offering. And they also argued that the purpose uh, that the consumer wished to achieve was really known to Scenic Tours, which was an all right. you know, inclusive luxury holiday. Right. Okay. So because the bar was set so high with that luxury status, it, it was very hard to meet. What did the what did the High Court say? So this proceeding has sort of gone through multiple steps. It wasn't in dispute that Scenic should uh, compensate the Moors and other group members for economic loss. What was in dispute was whether they were able to claim damages for non-economic loss of disappointment and distress caused by the disappointing holiday. Now, the issue that the High Court really had to consider was whether disappointment and distress uh, amount to a personal injury. And the High Court really held that uh, disappointment and distress for a breach of contractual obligations to provide a really nice vacation um, and not a personal injury. They're not mm. um, they're not sort of within that realm. Um, instead, they are claimable uh, under the Australian consumer law. I this see. So we sort of operate in like a purgatory below a diagnosed injury, but in that kind of consumer lens. Exactly. Um, ah. And it's sort of a, a real ramification for, I suppose, service providers of holidays or even, you know, wedding planners, travel agents, people who are engaging uh, with consumers and entering into contracts that promise a nice time. Because yeah. now if that nice time doesn't occur because of breaches, those consumers have the right to claim damages for the distress or disappointment um, that they've suffered. That they've experienced. Right. Okay. That's potentially pretty significant on a number of different service providers that, uh, you know, pr propose that they sort of offer really high-end um, events or, um, you know, as, you've, as with, I think, the luxury kind of standard. So is this a mm. bit of a case of provider beware rather than buyer beware? I think it is. I think it's really going to put uh, companies on notice. What, um, what do you think might be the implication, given there's been a lot of tourism providers cancel suddenly due to COVID-19 and rearranging plans for people? Will this be something that might cripple tourism providers? I think it sort of sits, you know, the issue of cancellation um, and the provision of credits sort of sits in a funny space. I feel like this could really impact um, consumers who have, you know, missed out um, because of that. But it could also, you know, be unaffected as well because the holiday hasn't actually taken place. Mm. Um, and it seems like it was a it was it was quite contingent on those consumer guarantees as well. Mm. So. 
um, unless there's been a breach of the consumer guarantee, then it doesn't seem like uh, that there's, it, it's necessarily something that is compensable still. Exactly. And further to that, I think there's a sort of added threshold where that disappointment and distress um, coming from the breach of the consumer guarantee has to have been reasonably foreseeable. So I think... Right. It's so a pandemic, be for instance, might be tricky. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Was okay. COVID-19 reasonably foreseeable? Or, you know, on a sillier note, if someone attends a buffet and there's crab instead of lobster, it might not be reasonably foreseeable that they'd be so distraught. Um, Look, I, I know that I personally <laughs> would be very distraught to receive only crab rather than lobster. Um, Lauren, thanks so much for joining us um, tonight. That's been a really helpful recap of um, this cruise ship fiasco luxury disaster debacle. <laughs> Thank you for having me. And that was Dr Lauren Meath talking about the scenic tours judgment that was handed down last week. Our main discussion tonight is about a unique Australian law course. The website of the Centre for Law and Justice at Charles Sturt University states that, quote, our Bachelor of Laws is unique across the world for its incorporation of compulsory Indigenous Australian content, resources law and community law, in addition to the traditional law curriculum, end of quote. So that means that future lawyers studying at Charles Sturt finish with more than just your run-of-the-mill law qualification. They're not only able to become legal practitioners, but have also been trained in Indigenous cultural competency, the only Australian law school to do this so far. So to explain what this means, we are joined by two very special guests, the two, two of the original designers of this law course. The first is Annette Gainsford, lecturer in Law and Justice and Wiradjuri Academic Fellow at Charles Sturt Uni, and Professor Alison Gerrard, the first head of the law school at the Centre for Law and Justice at Charles Sturt Uni. Welcome, Annette and Alison. Thanks, Sue. Lovely to be here. Yeah, thank you, Sue. Um, so we're really interested in about the beginnings of this special law course. How and why did it start? Shall I take that one, Annette? Absolutely. You can, you can start. Because <laughs> um, I started at the preface and really Annette came along at the introduction to this book. So <laughs> um, Charles Sturt was one of the only universities not to have a law program. Federation University in Ballarat was the only other one not to have a law program. And so when the idea was mooted that, you know, we have and design a law program, Charles Sturt wanted to do something different with it, not just to bring out another law course because clearly the market was flooded and didn't need that. They contracted Emeritus Professor David Weisbrot, who um, scanned the sector, scanned the market, and spoke to various stakeholders across the um, lands in which um, Charles Sturt University campuses are based. He was particularly taken by this, at the time, the Centre for Indigenous Australian Studies based in Dubbo, and Associate Professor Wendy Nolan and her colleagues who had led a lot of the national landscape in terms of lobbying for Indigenous perspectives to be incorporated in, in higher education, not just curriculum, but uh, various other aspects of higher education. And so he produced this scoping document, if you like, and, and had that international experience to look around and say, well, this would be really unique on a world stage. 
to have a law program that as a compulsory um, curriculum embedded Indigenous perspectives. So fortunately, that was a convincing case and uh, I was um, recruited to kick off the program and very quickly realised as a non-Aboriginal person that uh, I was going to need to upskill quickly and to recruit superstars like uh, Annette Gainsford, <laughs> who, um, who came into the, uh, into the project in, in the early stages and really, um, you know, we were able to do so much more in terms of understanding the design, development and delivery, delivery and how to, um, I'm going to say this, but I'm sure I'll explain it later, how to do Yinjimara and do justice to um, embedding Indigenous perspectives in curriculum. Mm. So if you could explain what Yinjimara is, Annette, that would be fabulous. Yeah, so Yinjimara is um, a philosophy and a way of life. So Charles Sturt University um, were, were given the phrase Yinjimara Wanangana for Charles Sturt University to, to embed that philosophy of a way to, to live in a world worth living in. But Yinjimara particularly is a Wiradjuri philosophy and we have a very close connection and community partnership with the, the local Bathurst Wiradjuri elders who, who, who put Yinjimara across everything. So it means to go slow, to be respectful, to build relationships and to make sure that we're doing the right thing at the right pace. So it was not, um, it wasn't a quick thing that we could do. It wasn't um, a ticker box. It was a very authentic way under a Wiradjuri philosophy of Yinjimara. Um, it was about us being humble and us really working closely with that community partnership with the Bathurst Wiradjuri elders to embed Indigenous cultural competency across the, the CSU Bachelor of Laws. So when you say it's embedded, um, you mean it's compulsory, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll let Alison speak to that first. Yeah. Um, I think I've learned a lot from Annette about what embedding um, means. And, uh, for, I mean, it's not, it, it means that it doesn't happen by accident. It means that there's a clear pedagogical framework that we're following. It um, also means that we understand what privileging Indigenous voices in a curriculum means. Um, but it's, it's not just about curriculum as well. It's about, um, uh, you know, employment strategies. It's about community partnerships. It's about decision-making, governance. Uh, it's not just curriculum. But by embedding, we mean a clear pedagogical framework. And, yeah, it's, it's not, it is compulsory, but it's also not isolated. So it's in context and it's a normal part of curriculum. I've got a question just to flow on from that. Um, does that mean it's not it's not just one uh, unit where you attend lectures, do an assessment, and pass that unit? It's it's more it's more than just that. What what is actually involved? Yeah. So we um, when our students come into our first initial subjects like um, Law One One Two, which is the introduction to the Australian legal system. Um, we, we explain the pedagogical framework. The pedagogy is mapped across the course. So we're looking at areas of, um, you know, um, looking at your own cultural bias, looking, looking at um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and contemporary social realities, and then we're building up to discipline specific. But one thing that, and we've adopted the Universities Australia National Best Practice Framework for Indigenous Cultural Competency, which um, was also led um, by 
by, by Wendy Nolan. She had a lot to do with that. So Wendy was at Charles Sturt University. But that pedagogical framework, that, that there is a key component which is called critical reflexivity. And it's that critical reflexivity that's embedded um, across the content as well. So in particular, we use the Gibbs critical reflexivity model, model of um, looking at how we critically reflect. So we have actually mapped Indigenous cultural competency to include um, areas like histories, social and contemporary realities across specific subjects. So if you're looking at um, things like native title. We will touch on native title in, um, in, in Law 112, which is our introductory subject. Um, we have a communication for law subject where we're actually looking about how we communicate positively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In property law, we're looking at native title again. But then when we come up to those key capstone subjects like Law 314, which is our community law subject, and even in resource law, we are, we are actually getting further and further in depth of native title across that, that process. And that's done with a, a number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander concepts and a number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives. Also Indigenous law. Um, so we, we particularly look at Wiradjuri law systems because we, we're working with the place-based model with local Wiradjuri people and how um, Wiradjuri law is also a component of the content that's embedded across the subjects, which makes up the entirety of the course. So, so how does that look? Like, like um, anyone who's done a law degree knows that there's a whole bunch that the legal profession says, you know, you must, every law degree in Australia has got to have a particular set of content that is, that's compulsory. The priestly 11, yeah. <laughs> the priestly 11, we all know about that. <laughs> So how does that, you know, is is this uh, Indigenous cultural competency built into all of those compulsory subjects as well? Is there any subject, for example, across that whole law degree at Charles Sturt Uni that this is not, where this is not connected? Mm. Yeah, and I think that's important to have this. What we're doing isn't trying to create a blueprint for this is how a law degree should look. What we're trying to do is, is establish clear frameworks for consultation and pedagogy so that you can work with communities, partners, with elders, with um, Aboriginal lawyers and develop an, um, a curriculum as to where this content should go. And it might not be a good fit in some subjects. It might be a better fit in other subjects. And the other thing that you want to um, uh, do when you're um, having those discussions is making sure that you pay attention to uh, not just what we call a deficit model, so not just looking at, um, you know, rates of imprisonment or, or, or things like that, which often I think, you know, myself as a criminologist, uh, you know, we're all aware of the stats, but it's not contextualised. So designing curriculum in consultation with elders enables those um, uh, spots to be identified where Indigenous perspectives can and, you know, ought to be um, relevantly embedded because um, different law schools have approached this differently. Some have said that they want to do it in, you know, all subjects, some not in priestlies, but it really, you know, I think what we would argue is it depends on the place that you are teaching um, Indigenous content and it depends on what your community stakeholders and what your consultation reveals about where content fits. Uh, what's it like for a student as opposed to, you know, 
another kind of a law degree at another place? Mm, good yeah. question. I have the pleasure, or did have the pleasure of teaching with Annette in the first year subject, uh, where we we actually talk about pedagogical framework, which is big terminology for you know first year anyone, but really what it sets sets out is a learning framework or a learning journey. And we acknowledge that people might be at different parts on their journey and there's no end to that journey as well. It's something that you embrace as a, a lifelong process. And certainly for me, I find that what it enables us to do with our students is empathise, to demonstrate critical re reflexivity around our own cultural bias. I come out to students as being gay and I think that's important to, you know, uh, acknowledge and role model that we all have culture and, and you know, fosters that critical reflexivity around your own culture. But I think what um, Annette and I have certainly noticed is it really connects students to Charles Sturt, to the law degree, and it dismantles a lot of those um, kind of barriers that can be in a law school environment around, um, you know, competition and uh, pegging each other. You know, when, you, when you're starting and setting out a framework around Yunjimara that's about being gentle, about, you know, about being humble and being respectful, everyone can see that and feel connected and, and to be a part of that. Annette, would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, um, our student feedback and our student interaction has been, you know, so, uh, so positive. But I think, too, it's the students' relationship with, um, with our elders and with our community that is um, developed and sustained across the degree. Um, obviously, our capstone subject, which is Law 314, it's a 16-point subject. We have a cultural immersion um, that's attached to that subject. And um, at the end of that day, um, I have the, the absolute privilege in doing the debrief after the cultural immersion where the students go out onto country with our elders and um, they're, they're just overwhelmed with the generosity and the knowledge sharing of our of our traditional owners and of our elders but how um, they have been able to build up those relationships and to build their knowledge and and to acknowledge that you know indigenous cultural competency is a lifelong journey and even long after they graduate graduate and, and they're in the profession, that these resources are still available to them, that those relationships that they make at um, Charles Sturt University, whether it be with faculty, whether it be with um, um, our Aboriginal elders or our, our Aboriginal industry experts that come in, that those relationships and resources are available to them. So um, the, the students um, have been overwhelmingly positive, especially after um, that cultural immersion debrief. And um, it, it's like a light switch goes on during that cultural immersion program where they, they say, you know, we, we learnt um, this in this subject. We, we were able to talk to an elder or we were able to talk to an Aboriginal industry expert. And, and this has built our knowledge to the point where, where they come from the cultural immersion and go, this is a light bulb moment for us, but um, what I particularly like is when students provide feedback and they email us and they want to do research projects or they want to implement mm. projects in their own community or their own workplaces of content that they've learned at CSU. That's great. Yeah, I just just listening to what you're what you're describing, it's reminded me, I think, of my own experience um, at law school. I mean, I finished just over 10 years ago now, good Lord. Um, and certainly um, I think my experience would be quite similar with others in my cohort where uh, there might have been an, 
an element, for example, of property law, where we did like a week or two on native title, but then it was very much like, okay, and on with the real show. And I guess in that way, it kind of replicated, I guess, the kind of misuse or, or, or boxing of, um, you know, how Indigenous history is, is often pigeonholed as part of broader curriculum. And it's a, an opening week. And then it, and then it sort of t- ticked that box and moved on. So it's great to see that the degree has really been completely recalibrated to weave, uh, you know, Indigenous cultural competency into every subject, um, which is just a really a really great way of ensuring that, um, you know, education is, is meaningful um, and develops a person for thinking about how they will um, ensure that they continually engage with what cultural competency is for the rest of their, their professional life. I was wondering, I guess, whether you've got any data or statistics yet. I know that the, the course hasn't been running for, for terribly long yet, but whether your students you find are tending to go into a professional area where they do seek to out, you know, Indigenous justice or other kind of areas um, at, a, at a higher rate than perhaps other law students would. Mm. We've only had about 30 um, graduates so far, so we've got a small pool in which to draw from. And I think, um, I think so, so I don't think we've got the data yet to, um, to crunch that. Certainly our anecdotal feedback is that graduates are finding this useful regardless of the profession that they've chosen to go in. So people working in policy, people working in insurance, um, people working in smaller law, law firms, their skills um, learnt are able to be incorporated into whichever um, job they've, they've, they've arrived at. I mean, we, we say that cultural competence is transferable. We start by learning about Indigenous cultures, histories and contemporary social realities, but you can transfer that and it does you know, foster those skills of being able to empathise and, you know, walk in other people's shoes. And that as a um, skill for cross-cultural communication, for teamwork, for building emotional intelligence is, you know, so important to any of the jobs that law graduates will will end up in. I've been through one of the cultural immersion days, but I want Annette and Alison to talk about, about what that's like for the students in, you know, what, what, is, what is a, what does that mean? You know, a lot of our listeners won't actually know what cu- a cultural immersion experience is. Yeah, so so we, we look at preparing the students and, you know, a lot of the students have said to us, we, we can understand why you leave the cultural immersion to the end and you don't start with a cultural immersion. So we're basically preparing our students to communicate positively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We're, we're building their knowledge, we're building their skills and we're building their, their ability to apply those skills to their discipline-specific areas. And so we come to Law 314, which is a capstone subject, and... And we um, offer a cultural immersion, which is um, a a day-long process. Um, Me, myself, I go in and um, do what I call a cultural orientation the day before. And I just say to the students, this is what we're preparing for. We're going to go out onto country. We're going to go to, to sacred sites. We're going to... Um, work with our our Bathurst Wiradjuri elders and we're going to listen to their stories. Um, We need to to listen to um, the protocols surrounding some of these sacred sites. So particularly here in Bathurst, we we visit um, Walu if it's available to us. Um, Walu is actually, um, other name is Mount Panorama. So depending on the the racing schedule for the the week, 
we, we're able to access areas of Walu and, and we tell the, the, the traditional stories. Now, um, our elders um, share their knowledge and readily share their knowledge and we, we, we give a, a generic understanding of, of Walu and the traditional and the customs that are related to that area. We then go down and visit um, a place um, on the Wombul. Wombul means um, the Macquarie River here at Bathurst. And we look at areas like martial law. So martial law was declared on the Wiradjuri people in 1824 here in Bathurst. So we look at those areas. We also look at... Um, um, some of our, one of our elders um, is um, a descendant of Windradine. So we look at the stories and we look at the traditional stories and the customs and we look at how um, Wiradjuri law has played um, a, a major component and how colonisation has um, impacted Wiradjuri people. And we listen to the stories on the land where it, where it happened with the elders and the descendants and the traditional owners and the traditional custodians of those people. And it's, it's um, a, a deeply moving experience. We start that day by um, having a smoking ceremony to prepare everyone to go out onto country. And we spend a whole day with the, with the elders on country listening to the traditional stories. And then in the afternoon we have a debrief um, because we... We um, are looking at the cultural safety, not only of our elders and our presenters and our staff, but um, the cultural safety of our students. We have a debrief in the afternoon and then we contextualise the content to, to, the, um, to the assessment and to the overall content of that subject. But that day is really um, led by our Bathurst Wiradjuri elders and our students are able to experience um, their lived experience, their Indigenous knowledges, their Wiradjuri knowledge, their Wiradjuri stories and their Wiradjuri connection to country. What, what kind of changes would you like to see in legal education based on this experience that the two of you had in, in, have had in designing a very unique and eye-opening experience for law students? For me, educating our future lawyers to recognise Indigenous customs and laws within the common law system is really essential. Um, I also think the role of the legal, legal educator is one of great importance as um, I think we as legal educators have a responsibility to provide a space for truth telling in our curriculum, but also not only push that in our curriculum, I think law schools and legal educators have an opportunity to advance the national narrative um, as true reconciliation in Australia can't happen without progressing the truth-telling process. And I think we have a really important role to play in that. Um, I also support that decolonisation of our law and legal system in Australia is something we can action through the process of legal education. However, that legal education must be grounded within the truth and the voice from our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities. Hard to add anything to that, isn't it? But I would like to no. have a, uh, just to set out that the Indigenous Cultural Competence Law Academics Program led by Marcel Burns um, from the University of New England uh, produced a wonderful report with a series of recommendations about for legal education. One of those was that um, accrediting bodies uh, recognise that Indigenous cultural competence should be a requirement for admission. And whilst there are um, clearly some ways to go to make sure that self-determination is reflected in that process, so um, not having, you know, the New South Wales legal profession 
admission board, for example, say this is cultural competence or this isn't, but that be, um, you know, those decisions we made by Aboriginal people and having those governance processes in that, that admission um, uh, organisations, I think that would really um, escalate and accelerate uh, legal education's embrace of Indigenous cultural competence. It's certainly been one of the most fulfilling things that I've had the privilege of being involved in. I look forward to continuing that work and creating, um, establishing deeper ties to the Ngunnawal elders here in Canberra, where I'm based now. Um, but yeah, it's certainly uh, more of this work uh, is uh, so valued and so needed. Yeah, it's awesome. The awesome reimagining of a law degree. I hope it's kind of, for me, it's inspiring that perhaps there are other ways of reimagining law qualifications as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Thanks so much, Anna and Alison. It was so lovely to meet you both. Our pleasure, really yes. Stay in touch. And that concludes this evening's programming for Done By Law. Thanks so much for joining us and be sure to tune in again next Tuesday at 6pm on 8.55am on 3CR Community Radio. I'm Gemma Lee Dodds and we've been joined by Sue and Daniel. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye, guys. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.